Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for music that has driven our hearts to Christ, to be reminded of His provision, His care, His life, our hope, that we will be like Him when He comes to take us home to be with Him. This is a certainty, a guarantee, an assurance. It is our life. We thank you. Might that be a comfort to us? Might it embolden us? And might that reality of what Christ will do to finally save us be the source of our strengthening one another? And so, Father, would you, would you guide us into confidence in Christ this morning and boldness in caring for one another? For we're weak, frail, broken, weary, troubled, and we need help. Would you help us by this word? And then by this word also, Prepare us to come to the table in a few minutes. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I love the story told by Larry Olson in the book Outdoor Survival Skills. He writes this. A guy has been lost in the desert for days. He's out of food and water. His lips are parched. His tongue is swollen. His legs are bruised and bleeding from crawling. His skin scorched by the sun bitten by insects and pricked by cactus thorns. As he pulls himself up over the next sand dune, he sees nothing more than a wasteland through his bloodshot, sand-peppered eyes. He sighs and he says, You know, a few more days like this and I could get discouraged. In actuality... We're prone to discouragement, aren't we? We're prone to being weary. We're prone to getting tired far more quickly than the man in that story. John Piper notes this in his book, The Roots of Endurance. One of the pervasive marks of our times is emotional fragility. It hangs in the air we breathe. We are easily hurt. We pout and mope easily. We blame easily. We break easily. Our marriages break easily. Our faith breaks easily. Our happiness breaks easily. Our commitment to the church breaks easily. We are easily disheartened. And it seems we have little capacity for surviving and thriving in the face of criticism and opposition. I think that captures it far better, don't you? That's the world I live in. We need help. And we need hope. And we need to be help and hope to others who are around us. We need to offer help and hope to those who are experiencing difficulty and are despondent and discouraged and maybe even despairing. That ministry of encouragement is foundational to who we are as a church body and who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. And it was a vital part of the Apostle Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians, even as we have read this morning. 
And as we come to the communion table this morning, I want to remind us of one of the principles that we've been talking about regularly this year as we come to the communion table, and that is our relationships within the body. One of the things we have learned in 2020 and 2021 is the critical nature of relationships in the body of Christ, the essential nature of relationships, the importance of relationships. And and about every other month as we come to this table, I want us to be thinking intentionally and purposefully about our role in the body and how we can cultivate, preserve and build up these relationships. And this morning we want to look together at the ministry of encouragement How can we encourage one another? Paul will say this at the end of 1 Thessalonians 5. Because of the certainty of Christ's return, we care for one another spiritually. Because we know Christ is coming back. Because we know Christ is king. Because we know Christ will rule. Because we know Christ will Take us to be with Him forever. That will be our source of encouraging one another, stimulating one another, emboldening one another to persevere in our faith here. Because of Christ's return, we care for one another spiritually. And in this one verse, the Apostle Paul makes four statements about our spiritual care of others in the body. Four statements about how we care for one another. Verse 11. Therefore. When he says therefore, he's making a conclusion. In the preceding ten verses, he has built out a theme similar to chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, about what is in store for the believer. It is a reminder of, of the position of the believer in Jesus Christ and what he will do for us. And he says, because of what he will do, we can conduct ourselves in a particular way in relationships on this earth and with one another. And so we do well to remind ourselves of the circumstances of the Thessalonian church. We need to be reminded that the Thessalonian church is a persecuted church. Just turn back a page or two, chapter 1, verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having served, having, excuse me, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You received the word, but when it came, it came with much trouble. With much persecution, with many trials, such that your trials in receiving and responding in faith to the word of God was so great that it became exemplary throughout Asia Minor in Macedonia and Achaia. They were severely persecuted for their faith. Paul also had been persecuted there. Chapter 2, after we, verse 2, had already been suffered, after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, 
We have the boldness of our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid, amid much opposition. Well, just a little bit. They were opposed at a significant level. Verse 17. Therefore, brethren, we have been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit. And we are all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Acts 17 fleshes out what happened. We don't know exactly how long Paul was in Thessalonica. It may have been as short as three weeks. We think probably a little bit longer than that, but certainly not a very long time. But the persecution was so immense that the Thessalonian church said, Paul, we're okay. Get out of here for your own safety. And so Paul was driven away. That's why he says in verse 17, we've, we've had to leave you in person, though not in spirit. So our bodies are gone, though our hearts are still with you. His ministry in Thessalonica was short. Chapter 3, verse 4, indeed, while we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going, we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. We told you that suffering was coming, and it did. So the Thessalonians are suffering. Paul, in his ministry in Thessalonica, suffered significantly. And what is notable about the Thessalonians is their response to the suffering. They didn't ask the apostle, Paul, how can we get rid of this suffering? How do we get away from this suffering? How can we be freed from suffering? They simply asked the question, Paul, some are dying and Christ hasn't come yet. What about them? We want to persevere to the end and we know that when Christ comes, he will take his people into his kingdom. But some have died ostensibly because of persecution. Are they going to be at a disadvantage in the kingdom of Christ? What about them? And so Paul answers that question. He starts in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, talking about the rapture of the church and how Christ will come back and call his church out of this world before he will pour out his final wrath on the world and then after that come and set up his kingdom. And he reminds them with the hope of the rapture about a number of principles that are helpful for us. He reminds us, first of all, that death for believers is not final. Verses 13, 14, 15 of chapter 4. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are Asleep. Verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. They're not dead. Interestingly, there are those who talk about soul sleep. He's not talking about soul sleep. He's talking about soul life and body sleep. (laughs) The body's just asleep. He's using the imagery that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 9 when the synagogue official came to him about his daughter who died and Jesus shows up at his house. The crowd's a mess. They're out of control with their paid weeping and wailing, and he says, verse 24, leave, the girl has not died, but is simply asleep. Body's just asleep. Jesus, Jesus reminds us, Paul reminds us, that death for the believer is not final. The body is simply sleeping. It's waiting. And what it's waiting for is the resurrection 
of the body that will be like Christ's resurrection. So verse 14, our resurrected body will be like Christ's resurrected body. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And if he died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who fall asleep in Jesus. If Jesus rose, we will rise. And no believer will be forgotten by Christ. Verse 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Jesus hasn't forgotten. I know you're concerned, Paul says to the Thessalonians, about those who have already died. Just be aware. They're not dead. They're sleeping. The body's sleeping. And Jesus hasn't forgotten their names. And he knows where their bodies are. And he will raise them all. And not only will he raise them, but he will bring them into reunion with him. Verse 17, then we who are alive, he hasn't forgotten us either. If we happen to be alive when he comes back, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. Jesus and the resurrected bodies of the saints who have already fallen asleep with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Always be with him. Never again separated. This is John 14, right? Jesus says, I'm going away, but I'll come back. I'm coming back and I'm going to bring you to myself. Same principle. And these truths, Paul says, verse 18, therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's what it should do. It brings rest to the soul. I'm not anxious. I'm not worried. I'm comforted. Then in chapter 5, Paul turns it from talking about the rapture to the coming day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament can refer to a number of different things. But it's clear that Paul is talking here using the term the day of the Lord to refer to the end of the age. Christ will come back, set up his kingdom in Jerusalem, rule on his Davidic throne from Jerusalem and judge the nations. And then from that head into eternity. And so he reminds the Thessalonians of a number of principles, a number of principles about the day of the Lord. One is the Christ's return is is in order to set up his kingdom and he will judge all peoples and all nations. Verse 2, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. They're saying peace and safety, verse 3, but destruction will come upon them suddenly. They will not escape. Christ is coming. He'll set up his kingdom He will judge. None will escape. It will, in fact, be a disastrous destruction for those who are opposed to him. As disastrous as it will be for them, verse 3, 
it will not be disastrous for the believer. Verse 4, brothers, you're not in the darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. You're sons of light, sons of day. We're not of night. We're not of darkness. We're, We're not like those who will be judged. So then, let us not sleep. He's using the word here, sleep, differently than he did in chapter 4. Let's not be drowsy. Let's not be unaware. Let's, let's, let's not be asleep on the job. Let's be alert, sober, watchful. Christ's rule is not disastrous for the believer in Jesus Christ because we're in the light. We're not in the dark. We've been freed. We've been set free from sin That should produce watchfulness, attentiveness for the believer. Christ's coming kingdom is not for the pouring out of wrath on believers. It's for the pouring out of wrath on unbelievers. Notice what he says, verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath. The day of the Lord, there will be wrath. But that wrath is not for believers. We're not destined for that. We're not designed for that. We're not purposed for that. Because Christ has already absorbed God's wrath against us and our sin. And God is satisfied with that payment. And again, verse 10, the day of the Lord is for judgment, for the setting up of Christ's kingdom. It is for producing watchfulness for us. It is not for producing anxiety for us and pouring out of wrath on us. And finally, Christ's day or the day of the Lord is the promise of permanent reunion with Him. Verse 10, He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Same thing He said in 4.17. Christ is coming to take us back to be with Him. Now I want you to notice this. The Thessalonians say to the Apostle Paul, Life is hard. Things are tough. We're persecuted. People are dying. We're suffering. And Paul does not say to them, Hey, your life's not so bad. Toughen up. Get with it. He doesn't say to them, hey, you have Jesus. You don't have any reason to grieve. That is not what he says. He says you have a reason to grieve, but not as those who don't have hope. He doesn't minimize their pain. In fact, he affirms the reality of their suffering. He affirms the reality of death. But he reminds them that suffering and difficulties on this earth for believers are not final. What's final is Christ's return. That's final. And if he doesn't return, then despair. But your suffering, your death is not final. We do well to follow a similar pattern when we're trying to help the hopeless. Don't downplay what they're suffering. Don't don't minimize the sorrow, the pain, the difficulty of their burden. Don't say, I know you're grieving, but 
But let me tell you about my situation and my grief and how much worse mine is than yours. I know you wouldn't say it quite like that, but don't we sometimes do that? I know you had a hard labor when that baby was born, but let me tell you about my labor. I I know no woman has ever said that or heard that. Your suffering is bad, but let me tell you about my trial. Let me tell you about my kids, my parents, my boss, my lost job. Oh, brothers, we don't need to compare. To be alive in this world is to suffer in this world. And you can know everybody is a sufferer. And they don't need to be told, hey, it's not so bad. And that's not what the apostle is doing. He's not saying, get a grip. He is telling them that they need to remember their trials in perspective of what Christ has provided. They need to remember their trials in such a way that they maximize Christ's plan and Christ's power and they minimize the effect of the shortness of their suffering here. Christ is coming. That's the focus of Old Testament hope. I was thinking about Zechariah this week. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Zechariah 14. And in that day, his feet, the Messiah's, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move to the north and the other half to the south. And the Lord, verse 9, will be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one and His name the only one. Messiah's coming. You have hope. That's the Old Testament message. And that's the New Testament message. Christ is coming. Messiah's coming. He is our hope. What do we do? With that hope. Because of Christ's coming. Intentionally. Encourage one another. So he says. Verse 11. Therefore. Encourage. One another. The word encourage has a broad range of meanings. It can mean. Comfort or console. It can mean something like exhort or challenge. It can mean urge. Or compel, call to action. It's one of the favorite words of the Apostle Paul. It's used about 109 times in the New Testament. And Paul uses it 55 times. Right at 50% of the uses are Pauline. Paul uses that word 10 times in the Thessalonian letters. So it's a favorite word of his with the Thessalonians. Let me give you a couple of observations about this word. 
There is debate in verse 11 about how to translate the word encourage. It is, in fact, the very same word that's used in 4.18, therefore comfort. Same word, identical word. But in verse 18 of chapter 4, they've translated it comfort, console. Verse 11 of chapter 5, it's been translated, at least in my translated translation, something like encourage, exhort, compel, maybe even urge. There's debate about what Paul intends here. I think Paul wants us to read verse 11 in chapter 5 the same as 4.18. This is a dispirited people. They're discouraged. They're concerned about those who've been who've gone ahead in death. And I just think he wants them to be consoled. So he says, console one another with these truths. Take these truths and minister them to each other so that there is comfort, consolation, rest. I want you to notice something else about this word, and that is it is an imperative. Encouraging and comforting others is not optional. It's your duty. If you're alive and breathing and a member of the body of Christ, it is your responsibility to comfort others. In fact, there's a mutual encouragement, right? That's another observation here. Encourage one another. Everyone at various times needs to be encouraged and strengthened. We all need to be called to action. We all need comforted, be, need to be comforted. We all need to be given hope for what God can do in our circumstances. Sometimes you need encouragement. Brothers and sisters, sometimes I need encouragement. We both need it. Just like the little boy who said to his dad one day, Dad, let's play darts. I'll throw. You say, great shot. <laughs> he needs encouragement. Somebody's on my side. Sometimes you need that. Sometimes I need that. How do you know if somebody knows, excuse me, how do you know if somebody needs encouragement? Just look at them. Are they breathing? They need encouragement. Isn't that true? We have better days and worser days. But we all have days where we need encouragement, don't we? Pockets, areas of our lives where we need somebody to come along, put our arm around, put their arm around them, around us, and say, keep going, brother, I'm with you. Christ is King. Christ is Lord. When he says encourage one another, it's also reminding us that everyone is able to give encouragement. In fact, notice what he says in verse 1 of chapter 5. As to the times and the epochs, in other words, about the end of the age, everybody's disputing what's going to happen in the future. Brothers, you have no need of anything to be written to you because you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You know everything you need to know about the coming of Christ to be an encouragement to others. You have in this book what you need to be an encouragement. You don't, you don't, listen. When your brother and friend is discouraged, when his wife is sick and facing death, 
When he's lost his job and he doesn't know how he's going to pay his bills, you don't need to figure out how to solve his problem. You need to just point him to the problem solver, Jesus Christ. That's how we encourage. We know how it ends. And we comfort one another with that reality by saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is victor. Jesus will rectify every wrong that you have experienced on this earth. You can trust Him. So let me draw a couple implications. Are you looking for others to encourage? Do you have eyes open and ears listening for those who are hurting and need a word of comfort? Another implication. Am I aware of the kind of encouragement my brother needs? I've noted that there's a variety of ways that this word can be translated. And that means that there's a variety of ways that we can console people. I was talking to a friend of mine a while back and he said, yeah, I'm going to get some counseling. I said, really? What What are you getting counseling for? What do you need help with? Oh, I just need somebody to kick me in the backside and tell me what to do. I know what I need to do. I just need somebody to hold me accountable and kick me every once in a while. I just smiled and said, yeah, I get it. I've got, I've got friends that help me do the same thing. And that's a blessing. It's been said that um, the difference between a kick in the backside and a pat on the back is about 12 inches. But we need both, don't we? And we just need to be Aware. Sometimes a brother needs an arm. Hold him up. And sometimes he needs a kick. Go with the plan. You know what you need to do. Quit messing around. And I need to be aware of what my brother needs at that moment. And sometimes I need the same thing in close succession. Sometimes I just need some help. Hold me up. And then tomorrow, I might need the kick. Get with it, brother. Keep moving forward. And we, and we need to be aware of that. Need to adapt on the fly, if you will. Another implication. Am I preparing myself to encourage others? Paul says, you yourselves know. That implies they've been in the Word. They've been studying. They know the Scriptures. They know how to take the book and apply it to the circumstances of life. Am I preparing myself in the same way? Am I actively encouraging even if and when I need some help? Paul doesn't say, look, when you get your act together, then go be an encourager. He just says, you encourage Roger, Roger, you encourage Terry. Wherever you are, whatever your circumstance that day, you just help. You come alongside. You're... you're, (laughs) I had a friend when, when Regina and I were engaged about half a millennia ago um, because the sweetness of our marriage together has seemed like it's been that long. I redeemed that one, didn't I? <laughs> when, we, when we got engaged, a friend of mine came along to me and, and said, listen, I just want to give you two pieces of advice. One is don't get married until you can financially handle it. 
and I was in seminary and I was making $7 an hour cleaning pools and I thought, I'll never get there. And that's the second thing he said, and you'll never get there, so just go ahead and get married. (laughs) Brothers, if you wait until you are perfectly whole spiritually, that you're an absolute perfection spiritually, able to come with all the resources of heaven to pour into another person's life, you won't do it until you're in heaven. If you want to help somebody, you got to help them now. And that means you're going to help them out of your weakness. Remember, it's not about you. You don't have to solve the problem. You just have to point them to the Savior. So you point them to the Savior, even if you're weak. Because of Christ's coming, intentionally encourage one another, intentionally disciple one another. Paul says, encourage one another and build up one another. Build up as a construction term. In fact, I think every time that that word is used in the New Testament, except for when Paul uses it, it's always used in physical construction terms, like building of Herod's temple and that kind of thing. But Paul uses it in a figurative way to build up others, to construct people in the faith, to mature people, to edify. That's the word that we sometimes use to translate it. It's a word that denotes we need to be intentionally pouring into people's lives to disciple them, train them, to help them walk with Christ. And just like encourage, the word build up is an imperative. It's a duty. It's a responsibility. If you're alive in Christ, this is your job. It's not the preacher's job. I mean, it is his job, but it's not solely his job. It's not solely the job of the elders or the deacons or the Sunday school teacher or the home group leader. It's your job. It's all our job. And it's, again, it's mutual. There's a mutual responsibility to encourage each other, to build each other up, to minister to one another. And it's a present tense, which means it's an ongoing responsibility, which means it never stops. A couple other implications of this. Again, this is a command for all of us. I love what John Stott says. We are not to leave it to an elite, to the, an elite of professional comforters or counselors. Encouraging and comforting our ministries which belong to all members of the body of Christ. This is what we call around here every member ministry. We all do it. We're all engaged. And when we're all engaged, then the body is healthy. And we're going to see this played out particularly in Romans 15, 14 in just a couple of weeks. Another implication The solution for our despair is theological. Paul says, build up one another by telling each other about eschatology. (laughs) Really, Paul? My brother's discouraged because he's just gotten a stage four cancer diagnosis and you want me to talk about eschatology? And Paul says, amen. Why? Because eschatology is a reminder about how things play out at the end. That Christ rules. And that when we die, we go to be with Him. Always. So we're there next week, and the week after, and the year after, and the decade after, and the century after, and the millennium after, 
such that David has been there for 3,000 years, David the king of Israel, and it's like three days in eternity. It's nothing. It's barely begun. Theology is what helps us in our struggles. Says David Staxton in his book, God's Battle Plan for the Mind, Many Christians are discouraged because they believe the depressing lies of their fallen hearts rather than actively engaging and controlling their minds with the uplifting truths of God and His great redemption. What we need in order to help each other is the truth of the Word of God and just ministering that Word and the greatness of God to one another. Let's remind ourselves of the Bigness of an infinite God. One final statement of the Apostle Paul. Because of Christ's coming, keep on working just as you also are doing. Twice previously in this letter, the Apostle has commended the Thessalonians for doing the right thing. Chapter 4, verse 1, Brothers, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, just as you received from us instruction as to how to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, you're doing that, that you excel still more. Keep on. Don't stop. It says the same thing in the middle of chapter 4, verse 10. Indeed, we practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers... To love each other still more. You're doing it. Keep on. And there in those two verses, he says it explicitly. Keep on. But I think he needs us, means us to understand that same thing at the end of verse 11 in chapter 5. You're, all, you're already doing it. Implication. Keep on. Persevere. Don't stop. Endure. Isn't the hard part of ministry sometimes the need to keep on encouraging and keep on helping? When we keep doing what is right, we may be weary, but we will never be disappointed. It may seem fruitless at times, but who knows when a word of exhortation will push someone over the edge to significant sanctification or even salvation. Every time I'm trying to help somebody, I just keep thinking, not every time. Sometimes when I'm helping people and it's hard and we're stuck and the wagon has gone off the road and it's buried three feet deep in mud again and it's in the same spot in the same time And my temptation is to think, I quit. Lord, this guy just doesn't get it. Along with that, I I think this in my sanctified moments. What if this is the conversation that will get him out out of the mud permanently? Said Spurgeon, troubled people cannot be dismissed with just a word of hope and a dose of medicine, but require a long time in which to tell their griefs and to receive their comfort.
Some things are just long. Brothers, keep at it. It's hard, but it's always worthwhile. I came across a story by Australian pastor Stephen McAlpine. I think it was two or three years ago. I saw it again this week. And it makes the point of persevering with people who are discouraged. I can't say it better than he did, so let me read it to you. He's a pastor. The church he pastors has a school at the church. I was cleaning up around the front doors of the school building we use for church on Sunday. It was a typical windy, wintry day. So there was a pile of swirling leaves and the usual detritus from school and a couple of, a couple of days ago. Lunch wrappings, a sultana box, a drinks container, someone's sports bag in the corner and random pieces of paper. As I bent over to pick up a scurrying piece of cling film, a piece of paper caught my eye. It caught my eye because it was obviously torn from a notepad and then folded up. It was lying near the bins. I picked it up, curious. Obviously, a note, a note from someone in the school to someone else in the school. I put the other rubbish in the bin, but I had the note left over. I felt a bit voyeuristic. You know what that's like. Was this mere titillation, a script version of a peeping Tom? What would the note say? Who would it be to? Who would it be from? Who would it be about? I wonder why I even picked it up. I unfolded the piece of paper. And I felt incredibly sad. That's most of the note. I cropped off the name of the boy scribbled down above the arrow. There was something mean-spirited about it, something dehumanizing. But someone had taken the time to draw a picture of another student pointing a gun at their own head and putting their name above it with an arrow pointing downwards. That's him, folks, that boy pointing a gun at his head. No context, of course. Perhaps it was how a person was feeling. Perhaps it was a joke. Perhaps the boy who drew it and the boy for whom it was intended are best buddies. But it didn't feel like a joke. It felt like a tear across the soul. What had I been expecting? A love note, a reminder note, a word of encouragement? I hope that boy with a torn off name didn't get to see it. I guess it was passed on to someone else about him. And all I was left with was the speculation without in any way of knowing who the people involved were, what they, why, why, what they were doing this for, and who this boy might be or what this boy might have done or not done to elicit such a response. And then I thought something worse. Perhaps that boy drew the note of himself. It's entirely possible. We live in that kind of world. Schools are not pain-free zones. In fact, there is plenty of pain in a school, and it elicits enough pain itself for many students that the lingering effects hang on for decades. Just ask any psychologist. The forming years are the things where things stick, where they burrow themselves deep. It was a reminder to me as a church was about to start that people come into our lives in parts. We never get to see the whole. 
We've seen the torn off part of someone's day, their week, their lives. It's easy to think we see the whole picture or the context, but we don't. It's a reminder to be careful with our words, our actions, our attitudes and communication about others. It's a reminder that we form our actions and attitudes and communication about others at an early stage and we can carry those into the later stages of our lives for good or ill. I was preaching at church on Sunday night, preaching about not grieving as those who have no hope. We see so much grief and so little hope around us and that little torn note felt like a barb in my skin that pushed me to proclaim the wonder of Jesus and who He is and what He came to do for humans. And what did Jesus come to do? Here's a little note to remind you. It's a little note that I'm going to leave lying in the school grounds on Sunday night, ready for Monday morning. I guess there's little chance that the boy in the note pointing the gun at his head or the student who drew it will see it. So it feels like a small win, but a win nonetheless. Here's the note that I will leave. I came that they might have life and have it to the full. Jesus. It's a small gesture to counter the note of the boy pointing the gun at his head. But it's a life-affirming gesture. And don't we desperately need those at this moment? Oh, brothers, if you're in this body... You have been put here to encourage one another. In weakness at times. And at strength at times. Let us continue all the more to with purpose encourage and build up one another in the message of our risen and coming an exalted king. Father, I thank you for the message of Christ, the hope of Christ, the hope of redemption. Thank you that we are not hopeless. And that while we live in a broken world, a terribly broken world, we have exactly what we need to not just minister to the world, but to minister to one another. To hold each other up so that we can persevere. Some of us this morning may be as broken as that boy in that picture. All of us here have what we need to minister to people like that boy. Would you give us grace and strength to do so with diligence, with joy, and for the exaltation of a victorious Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.